Um, I wanted to uh, mention before we uh, get into uh, the message this morning, just briefly, uh, I don't know how many of you guys uh, pay attention to the Sunday morning email, but we started basically back when uh, COVID began and we had to go online and all that kind of stuff. We started sending out emails on Sunday morning to send out links and that kind of stuff for the services, and we have continued to do that uh, throughout the time, and we are continuing to do that now. And so we send out a morning Sunday morning email at 7 a.m. that has all the links and stuff for those who are maybe staying home and enjoying the service online, uh, but also you know things like bulletin and uh, you know sermon notes and those kind of things are on there. This morning, I know many of you who do show up here maybe don't even pay attention to that, although I would say you should read it because it's always fun because. Adriana has some goofy stuff that she puts in there. But um, yes, it's amazing. But uh, anyway, if you normally just ignore that, or even if you just read through the stuff, there is a, a special document that I want to draw your attention to this morning. Yesterday, the elders, had, we had a meeting, uh, just a normal meeting, but we also talked through kind of COVID stuff and kind of with the rising cases in our county and those kind of things. And so we felt like we just wanted to make another statement communicating clearly to everybody kind of where we're at on that just to make sure everybody knows. And so uh, if you just encourage you, if you haven't seen that already, just to maybe when you get home this afternoon, take a look at that. Uh, and if you have any questions, please don't hesitate to contact one of the elders or myself. Uh, we would love to answer any questions we can on that. Uh, just encourage you, you know, COVID is still out there. We've got several families in our church that are have it right now. Uh, it is a dangerous virus. And so we just need to continue to pay attention to that. And, uh, but also we want to continue to be able to worship together and recognizing that, uh, you know, we each need to care for our own individual concerns, <laughs> but also the concerns of others as well as being, you know, being sensitive to other people's um, concerns as well. So, all right, enough on that. So, back into our message here, Ancestry.com. So, uh, that's our uh, title for this morning, and um, we, we're going to deal with the genealogies again. So, last week, you know, I didn't really deal with the genealogies too much in chapter 4 and 5. I just kind of talked more about, you know, big picture, what is the Word of God, right, and, and how do we understand that a little bit, because I feel like it was important to kind of lead into the genealogies and our perspective on the genealogies. So, this morning, I want to uh, now kind of get into those genealogies. And so we'll get there in a moment. But, uh, you know, as uh, was uh, Laura prayed earlier, talked, mentioned earlier, you know, yesterday was the 20-year anniversary of 9-11, or certainly an event that, uh, at least modern-day event, that most of us in this room, I'm sure, remember where we were on that day, right, that fateful day. And for me, I was working graveyards at the time in a grocery store, and so I had been, you know, working hard all night, and then about, I don't know when it was, maybe 6.30 or 7 in the morning, someone came into the store and said, hey, yes. Somebody just flew into the World Trade Center. I'm like, oh, that's weird. Right? I'm just thinking like a little Cessna plane or something that flew into it, right? Having no idea that by the time I got home by 8, 8, 8.30 or so, I was like, wow, turn on the news and see what's going on. And uh, of course, you know, again, we all have stories around that. And, and amazing, you know, even today as we think back, you know, 19 uh, people, 19 terrorists somehow infiltrate our country. Uh, Many of them figure out how to fly these planes, and then they go and they hijack four planes, uh, two into the World Trade Center, each tower, and then one into the Pentagon, and then one that we're not sure where it was headed, but uh, thanks to the bravery of uh, the people on board that flight, it went down in a field in Pittsburgh. Pennsylvania. Excuse me, Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania. Yes, thank you. See, you guys already know the facts. See, I don't um, So... Uh, so we remember these things, but I think we have to ask the question in line with where we're going today. How long will we remember these facts? 
You know, in a hundred years, are, are we going to still... Now, I know, we're all going to be, most of us gone, right? But, uh, but is the world going to still remember uh, what happened on September 11th, 2001 in America, New York, right? In uh, D.C. Is, are, are we going to remember? Is the world going to remember that? How about a thousand years down the road? Is it, is it just going to be a blip in the historical record of America? Or is it, is it a big deal, right? Is it something that's, you know, going to be there? Or is it not just, maybe it's not even going to be a part of any of the history, history books in a thousand years. How about 3,500 years into the future, right? 3,500 years when people grab a history book about this, this nation called America, will they read through it and will that event be listed? will be one of the things that are mentioned. Will they care 3,500 years from now? See, the reality is, is history is always up to the historian. Whoever's writing history is the one who determines what gets in the book. And every historian has to make a choice because it's impossible to record every event. It's, it's, it's just literally impossible. I mean, we think back, you know, I mean, some events, you know, like, you know, are a big deal to us, like the Civil War, that's a big deal, right? We as, you know, Americans, even though it's a couple hundred years, you know, ago, and we, we still, not quite a couple hundred years ago, but I mean, we, we still remember it, all right? We, we still, you know, I mean, not that we were there, but we remember key pieces of it. But every historian you read about that is going to include different details, different people, different events, different battles. How many of us remember or know much about the War of 1812? Now, maybe some of our historians in the room might go, oh, yeah, I remember that. Now, I will tell you this. You know, most Americans have really no clue much about 1812, and I personally don't know that much about it, other than I looked it up again, you know, just to kind of refresh my memory. But the reason I know about it is because I used to live in northwest Washington, and I had several Canadian friends and I went to school in Canada. And everybody in Canada remembers the War of 1812. You know why? Because it was the only war that Canada had against the United States, and they won. Wow. So they're like, Canada's like, you know, hey, you know, you may not, we may not have a big army, but hey, we took out an Americans, right? You know, no big deal, right? Anyway, so, you know, but this is historians, right? Who's writing what, right? And who is going to remember what? And so we have to understand, anytime we're reading a history book, it would be good for us to understand why this historian is writing this history book. What is he concerned with and who is he writing to? Now, oftentimes, modern-day historian books, history books will include maybe the first you know, kind of opening paragraphs, kind of tell you why they're writing this and maybe give you some clue to that. But ancient history texts don't usually do that for us. And so we are left with a lot of cluelessness about what is exactly going on. And so we need to, when we approach ancient history texts like the Bible, we need to keep, uh, we need to be careful about the assumptions that we bring to the text. And we need to remain humble because what they are recording may not be what you, we think they're recording. And so for us to take our 
21st century mindset and then try to impose that on a text that was written 3,500 years about history that was likely 4,000 years older than them, we should be pretty humble about what we take from that. And, you know, don't impose our 21st century mindset on cultures that are totally different and so far removed from us. All right, with that kind of an introduction, I know maybe some of you were wondering if I was going to do this, and I decided I'm going to do it. So I'm going to read Genesis chapter 5. That's right, genealogies. I know most of you, you get to the genealogies, you just skip over it. Not because necessarily it's just boring, but because it has all those crazy names. And who wants to pronounce all those crazy names, right? And so I thought, you know, as a preacher, you know, <laughs> do you really take a risk and read the crazy names? But I'm going to do it anyway. And, uh, you know, but yeah, it's okay, you know, because uh, this book was written 3,500 years ago. I can pronounce it whatever way I want. It's going to be great. <laughs> Genesis chapter 5. Here we go. This is the book of the generations of Adam. I can pronounce that one all right. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days that Adam lived were 930 years and he died. When Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived after he fathered Enosh 807 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. When Enosh had lived 90 years, he fathered Kenan. Enosh lived after he fathered Kenan 815 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. When Kenan had lived 70 years, he fathered Mahalalel. Yeah, that's a fun one. Kenan lived after he fathered Mahalalel 840 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Kenan were 910 years and he died. When Mahalalel changed his name because he couldn't say his own name, <laughs> had lived 65 years, he fathered Jared. Mahalalel lived after he fathered Jared 830 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Mahalalel were 895 years, and he died. Whew. When Jared had lived 162 years, he fathered Enoch. Yeah, Enoch. Jared lived after he fathered Enoch 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. Kind of a theme here, right? And he died. Uh, reminds me actually of a skit I did once time. Uh, it was pretty fun. You remember that? The skit? That was a fun skit, wasn't it? Yeah. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Mystery. Scary. What did he do? God took him? I mean, what? I don't know. When Methuselah had lived 187 years, he fathered Lamech. Methuselah lived after he fathered Lamech 782 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Methuselah, oldest man in the world, were 969 years, and he died. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, 
Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our minds. Excuse me, our hands. That's a tough word to pronounce, yeah. <laughs> Lamech lived after he fathered Noah 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Lamech were 777 years, and he died. After Noah was 500 years, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Jepheth. All right, there you go. Over and over again, talking about all these different people, ancestors, and, uh, and, and, and who, you know, I mean, just kind of fathered and fathered and fathered, and down the line we go. But we have to recognize right here at the beginning of this genealogy as we deal with this, again, uh, reminding you of what I just said, that we got to be careful taking our 21st century minds and putting it and posing it on the text. Because there are a lot of questions and debate about... What is going on with this genealogy? Are these real ages? 969 years, Methuselah? Maybe some argue that it has to be 969 years. And if it's not, then the Bible is wrong and, and it's, it's lying to us. And so we should just throw it all out. So it, says that it basically says that if you don't believe that these are 969 actual years, the way we perceive them today then that means that uh, the Bible is inaccurate and we should not listen to it. But I think we need to just be humble with this. Maybe it's not. Maybe they calculate years differently than we do. We don't know for sure the true context of these of these years, right? What, what is he trying to communicate here? Why is he writing the years? Most genealogies in scripture don't include how old they are. So why here does he include how old they are? Maybe, you know, he's trying to communicate something, but we don't know for sure what it was. But we need to be humble with this and understand that what Moses wrote is true. Whatever 969 means, it is true, okay? Whether it means what we perceive it to mean today or whether it means something that he perceived it to be then, you know, whatever that is, right? I mean, what he meant is true. But it may not, again, be true in our way that we perceive it. In addition, another debate area is the generations here. Are these all of the generations between Adam and Noah? Is it all of the generations? Maybe it is. Could be. Maybe there's generations that are missing. We're not sure, and this is the debate. Again, some would say this has to be the, you know, this is all of them. This is the only generations that, you know, are there, and we should just assume, boom, 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 one to another, this is exactly the way it was. But maybe it wasn't. Certainly, there's other genealogies in the Old Testament and New Testament that seem to be missing individuals, and there's no reference to why they're missing. Even the line of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1 is missing three generations. So what, and, and, the, and the correlation to that, Matthew 1 and 1 Chronicles 3. If you look at those genealogies in Matthew, it's missing three. So anyway, so what's going on here? We don't know for sure. 
It seems like if we look at it from our perspective, you know, when we're building the family tree, we want to know exactly, you know, who all is in that family tree up the line, right? We, we're, we want all the names, you know, and fill them all in so that we can track, you know, our lineage. One of the things that I found out, my mom started doing this Ancestry.com thing. <clears throat> And then, because uh, she, she didn't know who her real dad was. And so she's trying to figure that out, right? And so, and then we did it on my dad's side, the Vandemark side. And we found out that my, like, I don't think fourth or fifth grandparent, you know, great, 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 great grandparent or whatever, actually was adopted into the Vandemark family. So I'm not even a Vandemark, <laughs> right? I mean, my life is destroyed. I'm not actually Dutch. <laughs> I'm actually German. And so my whole identity, it's anyway. Um, but... <laughs> So, uh, so we want to know every little piece, right? But maybe back then they weren't as concerned with every little piece. For them, father might mean something bigger than just actually my son, father, right? You know, just the next generation down. Father might be, you know, I fathered, you know, grandkids. I'm hoping someday, right? You know, to have grandkids, that would be sweet, wouldn't it? Anyway, but you know, maybe, you know, but that perspective, right? Grands are great grandkids, right? I fathered great grandkids, right? I didn't like literally, they didn't, you know, you know, husband and wife, you know, that's not. But in scripture, sometimes that's the way they use the word father. And so again, trying to understand this. And I think we need to be, again, careful and humble about bringing our assumptions to a text that's 3,500 years old. Let's allow scripture to be scripture. And honestly, as we'll get into here, and now we'll get to the most important part, uh, we'll, we'll see that it doesn't really matter, right? Now, I'm not saying it doesn't matter at all, but how much does it matter? Okay. No matter what your perspective on the ages or on the generations and the genealogy, one thing is sure that this history is real history. It's true history. It's not something that's just made up, right? This is not a myth. It is not just some legend. It's not just a story that Moses thought up on his own to try to describe how things began. It's history. And that is one of the key things that these genealogies tell us, is that these are real, live people. Adam was an actual human being. He was not just some representative of the human race. You know, even Jesus and Paul refer back to Adam, assuming again that they were real people. And so these genealogies for sure communicate this, this truth that it, the history is real. Now, we do get a challenge from the world and even within the church in regards to the other historical texts that were around at the time that the Bible was written. There's a, a famous text, the Sumerian text, which is actually, as far as we can tell, was written about 800 years before Genesis was written. Now, this creates some tensions, but, and I'll get to them in a minute. But understand that the Sumerian texts and Genesis actually line up, especially the first 11 chapters. There's a lot of similarities. They both have a creation account. They both have genealogies. They both have a flood account. They both have some kind of type of uh, 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 Tower of Babel account. 
And so there's a lot of similarities, but the Sumerian text was written 800 years before the Bible was written. And so the assumption by many is that the older, the more accurate. But we need to be careful with that, and it's not necessarily true. To be older does not mean that it's necessarily more accurate. Because all of the histories had to have been tasked, passed down in generations through communication, right? Because before writing was a reality, we just remembered things, right? You told the stories and you understood them, you remembered them. And so all of them are coming from something. And a, uh, so a common understanding in Genesis 1 through 11 does not mean that Genesis is less, less reliable than the Sumerian text because it's younger. The world thinks that the con- this, this actually disproves the Bible's truth because they just simply lump it into the religious category. Okay, well, here's Sumerian text. This is the real history. And then, you know, Moses came along and he found them a Sumerian text. And, oh, well, I'm going to tweak that and make it into a religious text. But that's not the case, especially when we understand the type of God that wrote this book, as we saw last week. The type of God who inspired the writing of this book, who is keenly focused on truth. A God who is focused on what is real and true and calls his people to live according to that, you would expect what he has them write down better be true. This also needs to also needs to be. A, 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 we, a, this makes sense to us, but I think sometimes we forget this in the world. The world kind of doesn't see this, but secular accounts of history are no more reliable than a religious account of history, because our secular and we've seen this with other histories in other areas, even the Babylon history and Roman history and all these kind of things, where those who are in charge, the leaders who are in charge, secularly writing down to bring glory to their name. And so they change the facts, they change the stories to make themselves look better and other people to look worse. And so to say that simply because it's secular and not religious makes it less reliable, it's just, it's just a, it's not true. Moses did not steal these stories and spiritualize them. I actually think that the fact that Genesis account lines up so closely with the Samaritan text makes me feel more uh, positive that the Bible is true. Why? Because it is based in real history. It's not just something that, again, he just made up on his own. It's not some myth. It's not some legend. Think about Greek mythology. It has nothing to do with real history. But we have a Bible that correlates with other historical accounts of the flood, of creation, of Tower of Babel, because that is all real history. And we can know that because it's dealing with real history, that the God who is real and true is going to inspire the truth to be written. But it still leaves us a question. Why did Moses write? And who did he write to and for? If you look at the whole context of Genesis, and I think if you even step back a little bit further and look at the whole context of Scripture, you can get an idea of what Moses is doing here. What was motivating him and who was he writing to? So let's first deal with who was he writing to. He was writing to the people of God. 
The Bible's primary context, including Genesis, is the people of God. He's writing about the people of God, the worshipers of God, those who have surrendered their lives to God, starting with Adam and then to Seth and Noah and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Judah and David, right? The the entirety of the Old Testament is focused on the people of God all the way through, even into the New Testament, of course, culminating with Jesus. But there's also this kind of subcontext, if you will, and it's only in, uh, in relation to God's people, and that's those who are rebellious, the rebellious ones in the world. There's also, in chapter 4, we see a genealogy of those who have rejected God through Cain and then to Lamech. I mean, you know, we think, you know, it just, we see this progression in chapter, end of chapter four of evil. It starts with Cain, of course, the murder, but then it goes on to Lamech and Lamech is like bragging about how he is even worse than Cain. And he takes two wives. First time it seems it's recorded in history, two wives, which is not God's plan. And he takes two wives, but then also he kills someone simply because they offended him. And then from Lamech, we go to Ham, one of the sons of Noah, and then to Canaan, and then to the the people group, the Canaanites, and then into the New Testament, the Gentiles. So we see God, Moses is writing to the people of God. God is concerned about the people of God, and he wants to write their story. That he wants to write his interaction. Bible, the Bible is tracking God's work in real life through real people, people who have surrendered their life to him. But it does not include every person. There are people that are left out that aren't mentioned in the Bible. That you would go, wait a second, why? What, what? not everyone is enlisted? No, impossible. Historians have to make a choice, right? They can't write it all. There's events that are missing from our history of God's people in the Old Testament. We don't know what happened. We just know that God, these are the things for sure God did. And so I wanted to say, along that line, I want to read John chapter 21, because this kind of refers back to this as well. John 21, 25. So at the end of the book, this last verse of the book of John. Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. We only know some of what Jesus said, and actually very little of what Jesus said and did, and the people that he interacted with and the lives that he impacted. Because we can't write it all down. And so understanding that with, again, looking at genealogies, understanding that it's okay if it doesn't include everyone. That sometimes you got to make choices, and, and maybe we've left out some. And again, the most important thing of following the people of God, the context, the point, is that it culminates, of course, with the most important person, the most important descendant of Adam, Jesus. The one who crushes the head of the serpent. So that's the context of who Moses was writing to, but why did he write? What's the purpose? And again, we step back to the context of Genesis, but also the entire context of Scripture. And the point 
The primary purpose of all of the Bible is to show the way of salvation. A.K.A. Jesus. This is why as New Testament believers, as those who are in the New Testament era, if you will, we interpret and understand all of Scripture, not just the New Testament, but even the Old Testament through the eyes of Jesus. Because that is the whole point of the whole book, including Genesis, including the genealogies. The genealogies track the lineage of our Savior to point out the fact that he was real, a real human being who lived in real time and really did die. The way of salvation also includes this reality of our need. We see throughout the Old Testament, human beings over and over again trying to somehow reconcile their relationship with God and fail and fail and fail and fail and fail. And fail. Doesn't matter how we step out, how we try to get there, we end up stumbling and falling. And so that's part of the way of salvation is this recognition, first of all, that we can't do it on our own and that we need Jesus. But also one of the amazing realities that through Jesus, the genealogies that split with Cain and Seth are brought back together into one family of God. It's an amazing reality that for thousands of years, we've got the, 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 the enemy and the, and the holy ones, and they're battling back and forth, and there's this struggle, 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 and then you get to Jesus, and all of a sudden, everything is brought back together. It was so shocking that the disciples were even like, no, 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 wait a second. This isn't right. No, Gentiles can't be into the kingdom of God. No, 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 that's not how, we're the people of God. It's for us only. Thank God for Paul. Of course, God knew what he was doing, right? To step in and say, no, this, this gospel is for all people. Of course, we get a clue of that in Genesis chapter 12. When the blessing is offered to Abram. Follow me and I will bless you and I will bless the world through you. This is Genesis. This is the Bible. This is the way of salvation. The Bible tracks the key points of the way of salvation. Creation, sinfulness, holiness, grace, faith, and restoration. Interesting, I, I, I find this interesting. <laughs> God's creating is important. But not when he created. In the same way that Jesus' return is important. But when he returns, it's not as important. Our job is to recognize that in the beginning, God. And in the end, Jesus. Amen? <laughs> All right, worship team, come on up. Just a closing thought. I, I, just a, actually a thought of encouragement to some sense, and then we're going we're gonna to land on salvation this morning. But can, can we not, can, can we just choose not to let the genealogies, 
be a dividing point for us? Can we uh, agree to disagree? That, you know, maybe they are exactly as they are. Maybe that's, it, it, those are the exact generations. Maybe those, those years are exactly right. Maybe not, whatever. But can, can we just agree that it's okay for us to have different opinions on that? You know, it, it, it's fun to kind of extrapolate sometimes. And we, I think it's good for us to do that. You know, next week, Genesis 6, you know, the first four or five verses there are pretty crazy, right? Who are these sons of God and all the things, and they're having babies with the women. You know, what's going on, right? And so we can extrapolate and discuss and argue or whatever, but can we just make sure that we don't allow ourselves to get overly focused on these things that don't really matter? When we understand that God has created and given us an account. And the account is not so that we can cross every T and dot every I. The account is so that we can know who he is, who we are, and how we can get back to him. Real people. God revealed himself to real people. And he revealed the way of salvation to real people. Throughout history, question is, do you know the way of salvation? Not do you know if Methuselah was actually 969 years old. Not if you know the exact date when creation began. Do you know the way of salvation? And for those of us that know the way of salvation, what about your neighbor? Do they know the way of salvation? I mean, do they even know when the exact date of creation was in order to know what the way of salvation is? Do we need that information? Do we, they, is, that, is that super important? Now, I'm not saying that sometimes you've got to have that conversation with somebody, but is that, the, is that what they need to know most of all? If we know the way of salvation, do we actually believe it? Do you believe this? Do you believe it's true? Do you believe it's real? Do you believe that Jesus is who he says he is? That he's the son of God? As crazy as that sounds, wait, wait he's, he's 100% human and 100% God? Wait a second, that doesn't make sense. You're right, but do you believe it? A lot of things that don't make sense. Butterfly, right? Where did that come from, right? You go into this little cocoon thing and what? Do you believe it? Next question is, do you accept it? Do you accept, accept the way of salvation? Do you accept Jesus? Do you accept him as your Lord? Bow your knee to him and say, okay, I can't do it. I need you. I've rebelled against you long enough. Please save me. Oh, what a wretched man that I am. And then finally, do you trust do you trust it? Or are you constantly living your life in fear? Allowing fear to dictate every step you take. Because you don't really trust that your life is secure in his hands. Do you trust him? Maybe there's somebody in the room that it's the first time you even heard those questions. Maybe there's somebody in the room that you've heard something similar to that. 
but you've never really known the way, or maybe you knew it, but you didn't believe it, or maybe you believed it, but you didn't accept it, or maybe you accepted it, but you haven't trusted it. Wherever you're at on all of those questions, I just want to encourage you to take the next step today. Don't, don't stay where you're at. Certainly, we don't know when Jesus is going to return. But you know what? Something else we don't know? The day of our death. And one of the clear teachings of Scripture is that the decision that we make to reconcile to God has to be made this side of death. So don't be stuck. Don't allow yourself to stay there. Don't get distracted by the world and all it's telling you, telling you to look at. Jesus, he's the way. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this amazing word that you've given us, Lord. Thank you for revealing the way of salvation. Lord, thank you that uh, you start from the very beginning to reveal those important things that we need to know. The, 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 the roots of our faith start in understanding who you are and how you've created us and the fact that you've created us in your image and that you've created us for relationship and that even when we screwed it up, when we turned our own way, when we thought we could do it our way, you still continue to pursue us continue to work in us, continue to work through us. It's amazing. But also, Lord, you'd work in real time with real people. Thank you, God, for all you do and for your deep love for us and for revealing the way of salvation. John chapter 3, verse 11 and following, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know, and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not perish, excuse me, but God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. The people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to light lest his works should be exposed. But... Whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. In Jesus' name, amen and hallelujah. Have a great day.